the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the Gospel of John. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. We have to get beyond this kind of notion that has done a lot of damage in the body of Christ that goes something like this. Everybody who's sick should all get well if you just have enough faith. The truth is that sometimes God heals miraculously, and sometimes God will choose to heal medically, and sometimes God heals eternally and He takes people home, and that's the ultimate healing. But Jesus steps over a number of sick, lame, diseased people to go to the one to whom the Father directs Him. Sometimes the ways of God can seem confusing. Why does He choose to heal some and not others? Why does He allow some to get rich and other people remain poor? Why do some children have loving and dedicated parents and while others remain in foster care for years? As you listen to today's message with Pastor Gary, allow your heart to soften. You may not always understand the ways of God, but His ways are perfect and just. Trust in the Lord and know He works all things together for good. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of John chapter 5 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. That's 1 p.m., 1 in the afternoon. The father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. Okay, so here's this scene. Again, the only, uh, this miracle was only recorded here in John's Gospel. You have uh, Jesus in Cana in Galilee, and then you have this, what is referred to as a, a certain royal official, he's not named, who comes from Capernaum to Cana. Now, the distance from Capernaum to Cana is about 20 miles. And that, that's kind of staggering when you think about it. I mean, you know, in the day when there's no modern transportation, this guy on foot or maybe horseback or on a donkey or something is going to go 20 miles. And why is he motivated to go 20 miles? Because his son is lying sick, dying. And you, you'd do whatever you could too if your child were dying. And this guy goes to Jesus. He hears that he's there in Cana. He goes to Jesus and he begs him. That's the word that is used there in verse 47. He begged him to come and heal his son, 
who was close to death. Now, Jesus responds with a bit of a rebuke. It's not really directed towards this man because the you, the pronoun you in verse 48 is in the plural in the original Greek language. Unless you, plural, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, but it's directed really to the whole crowd, you will never believe. Now, listen, is there anything wrong with wanting to see miracles? I mean, this, again, this kind of sounds like a rebuke here. You want to see a miracle? The only reason you want to see a miracle here, you people will never believe unless you see miracles. Now, Jesus himself, John 14, 11, he said, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. So when you, when you look at what John 14, 11 says, when it, when when Jesus is quoted there, it looks like Jesus doesn't have much trouble with the fact that some people look to the miracles regarding him. Because he says, if you don't believe that the Father is in me and I am in the Father, at least believe on the evidence of the miracles. But the difference here in John chapter 4 is that he's perceiving in the hearts of some people that they want Jesus just simply to perform. Like it's a dog and pony show, you know, just Jesus, you know, put on a show for us. We want to be amazed by some of your miracles. And if the motivation is just we want Jesus to perform, then that's a wrong motivation. But if you come to Jesus because you believe in everything that he is and you're begging him to work miraculously on your behalf, there's nothing wrong with that. So there's a difference in the motivation. And back here in our story in John chapter 4, the royal official responds to him. Obviously, he, you know, he doesn't say, well, now that you've said that, I guess I won't ask what I've come to ask. Now, the royal official still says, well, sir, come down before my child dies. He doesn't take it personally. Why? Because his heart is right. It's not wrong. His heart, it, he's pleading because he believes that Jesus is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all he could hope or imagine. His son is dying. He wants Jesus to come heal him. And Jesus replies. Notice how he replies. He didn't say, did you just hear what I said? Did you, excuse me, did you hear? Did I not give you two ears? Did you hear? No, he doesn't say that. He says, you may go, your son will live. This guy's heart was in a right place. And I love the fact here that Jesus sometimes heals because he touches the sick. Sometimes he mixes his spit with mud. And sometimes he just says the word and somebody is healed. And that's what he does here. You may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word, departed. He's going to go back the 20 miles to the north where Capernaum is, kind of northeast. And then that's when he encounters his servants who have kind of met him halfway. Hey, you're okay. Your boy is living. And then he finds out, well, what time did the fever break? One o'clock. Hey, that's when Jesus said what he did. So now he and his household believe. So, you know, Jesus is gracious here. He is willing to do his wonderful work in the hearts and lives of people. He just doesn't want to be treated like some miracle machine. Like, you know, all we want is for you to do good things for us, but we have no intention of, you know, loving you or surrendering to you or believing in you. So this guy had a legitimate request and he got a legitimate answer and Jesus was merciful to heal his son. Chapter 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. 
one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Now let's just stop there because um, the storyline changes. But uh, here he is in Jerusalem. He's gone back up. It's an unnamed feast. Um, could have been Passover, could have been Pentecost, could have been the uh, Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Unnamed feast. He goes to Jerusalem there. And it tells us that in, in Jerusalem there by the Sheep Gate, the Sheep Gate today is also known as uh, Stephen's Gate. It's where he was uh, martyred. The book of Acts tells us. It's also known as the Lion's Gate. There is a pool. And the pool is called Bethesda, and it's really a combination of two Hebrew words, Beit, meaning house, and Zatha, meaning mercy. Some translations say Bethsaida, some there say Bethesda, like in the NIV, but it basically means the pool of mercy, or the house of mercy. And here Jesus has this encounter with this man who is paralyzed, Now, just last month when we were in Israel, uh, this is a picture that we took of the Pool of Bethesda. It was uncovered uh, really only rather recently, relatively speaking, in the 19th century. Greater excavations were done as recently as 1956. Now, it doesn't look like much of a pool today, right? What are you looking at there? It looks like just a bunch of rubble, and pretty much it is. Here's another view kind of going lengthwise But what you're looking at is the ruins where a Byzantine church was built in roughly the 5th century A.D. over top this ancient pool. Now, one of the things that Christians would do in the course of uh, coming across ancient scenes in the land of Israel uh, would be to build some kind of a of a temple or, or, or a house or a shrine or a memorial over top of these ancient biblical sites. And such was the case here at the Pool of Bethesda. There used to stand here a Byzantine church uh, from the 5th century A.D. And some of the ruins there, the rubble is on the bottom of the pool, basically, which is now kind of grassy. Uh, because in, in the 7th century AD, Persians came and destroyed the Byzantine church that was there. So what you're looking at now is rubble on the bottom of the pool from the Byzantine period. Um, the Romans also had a temple there. Byzantines had one. The Crusaders had, had a chapel there too. So over the centuries, there's been different levels of of uh, civilizations that have built over some kind of memorial structure over the Pool of Bethesda. I can tell you the first time I went to Israel in 1999, I was amazed when I saw this. This represents only a partial excavation of the Pool of Bethesda. The rest of it stretches. You see those buildings in the, uh, at the end of the pool? That's the Muslim quarters. The pool stretches under the Muslim quarters. They haven't even excavated the whole thing because they aren't allowed to disturb the Muslim quarters on top. What you have to imagine here, because this was what was startling for me when I first went to Israel, was I expected some kind of a, a small little pool, like a kiddie pool in the backyard you set up, you know, one of those blue plastic things you put up for your three-year-old in the back of your yard. I expected to see something small, something like an animal trough, you know, a watering trough for animals. No, no, no. You need to picture an Olympic-sized swimming pool. 
Now, why is that important to recognize? Because in the story, it says a great number of diseased and lame and sick people used to lie around an Olympic-sized swimming pool. How many is a great number? It's unknown. It's undefined. But some say hundreds, if not thousands. Not three or four people. Hundreds, if not thousands of people. Picture, if you will, around an Olympic-sized swimming pool, hundreds or thousands of sick, paralyzed, lame, dying people. And why are they around this pool? Well, because there was this belief. And here's what's interesting. Okay, some of you, in some of your Bibles, if you have a King James Bible, as I was reading through these verses, you said to yourself, he skipped the verse. That's because in the NIV, verse 4 is missing. If you have an NIV Bible, just look real quickly at verse 3 and then follow your eyes along until you get to the next verse and all of a sudden it says verse 5. And there's a footnote right there. And the footnote gives you verse 4. And I'll tell you, the reason it's a footnote is because there's some dispute. Do you believe the majority of ancient texts or do you believe the oldest of the ancient texts that may be fewer than the majority. So there's been a long-standing debate, okay? I think personally it should be in there because of the rest of the dialogue, but it doesn't really change the full effect of the story. It doesn't corrupt the gospel message in some way, as skeptics might say. But let me read from the footnotes, verse 4. It says this, From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool, after each such disturbance, would be cured of whatever disease he had. So then the question is, was this mythological thing or was this a legitimate thing? Again, this story is only recorded in John's gospel. Was it really true that an angel of the Lord would come down, stir the waters, and the first one into the waters would be cured of whatever their illness was? Now, how do we know for sure? We can't know for sure, but I tend to believe that the evidence points to the fact that this legitimately happened, and i tell you why. Because if it didn't happen... You wouldn't have hundreds or thousands of people hanging around the poolside. You know, after a few times, there would be people going, oh, this doesn't work. I'm never coming back here, right? So logic says that if you still have a great number of people around the pool, something was happening. Now, let's demystify it, though. Let's not make God into this, you know, kind of magical water. Is that what God is? Did he sprinkle fairy dust? He's kind of a magical water guy? No, listen, this is what's going on here. In those days... God can use any means he wants to cure people. This is not a stretch. In a couple of weekends, we're going to get to 2 Kings chapter 5. In 2 Kings chapter 5, there's a Syrian general by the name of Naaman who had leprosy. And what did God tell him through the prophet Elisha to do? Go down to the Jordan River, dip yourself seven times, you'll be cured of leprosy. God used the Jordan River to cure Naaman of leprosy. That was just a method that he used. It's not beneath or above God to use the pool of Bethesda to stir the waters so that in his mercy, he was extending healing virtue to people who needed to be healed. It's not unbelievable to to think that because here in God's mercy, he was providing a way for people to miraculously experience some healing virtue over their physical bodies. I think it happened. I think that's why people are crowded around the pool. And unfortunately for this guy... Because he's paralyzed, he can't get in. He can't be the first one to get into the pool. So here he is. He's been disabled. He's been paralyzed and invalid, verse 5 says, for 38 years. 38 years. 
This guy has been paralyzed. And when Jesus saw him lying there, verse 6, and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now, why would he even ask him that? Because listen, for someone to engage their faith, they have to respond. Jesus is not just going to supersede and decide, you know, I don't really, I know that you really don't want this. I'm giving it to you anyway. You know, God works in concert with the free will that he's given mankind. He wants to hear from this guy. Here's what I need. Here's what I want. Now, Jesus stands ready to do the miraculous, but he also wants us to engage our hearts in response to what he is able to do. And he asks this guy, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, I'm in this paralyzed condition. I can't get into the waters every time they're stirred. Even then in his dialogue, he talks about what verse 4 also says about the stirring of the waters. So I can't get in here. I can't get in here. Now, what is challenging to me, and, I, and when we have our Bible study here around the Pool of Bethesda, those of you who have been with me to Israel, you, you, you've heard this, but here's the challenging thing of this story to me. When you think about the hundreds, if not thousands of people who were lying around this pool, I want you to take note with me that Jesus only heals this one. Just this one. Um, we have to get beyond this kind of notion that has done a lot of damage in the body of Christ that goes something like this. Everybody who's sick should all get well if you just have enough faith. The truth is that sometimes God heals miraculously, and sometimes God will choose to heal medically, and sometimes God heals eternally and he takes people home, and that's the ultimate healing. But Jesus steps over a number of sick, lame, diseased people to go to the one to whom the Father directs him. Now, all of us have ministry, okay? All of us have ministry. You may not be in what we call full-time ministry like I am or the pastors here on staff, but all of us have full-time ministry. And I want you to be encouraged and challenged at the same time by this story. God does not call us necessarily to have to reach everybody. You can't do that. You and I are limited You might see a lot of need around you. You might see, if you will, a lot of needy people, if you will, around the pool of Bethesda in the course of your interaction with people in the world. Okay, You are not called to have to rescue all of them. But here's what I do want us to be sensitive to. Who is that one that God wants to give us eyes and a heart for that we can minister to? Because even the Son of God in that moment was not obligated by the Father to heal everybody around that pool. He went to the one to whom the Father directed him. God, give us eyes for that one person we work with, for that one person in our neighborhood, for that one person in our family that he wants us to minister to and then be faithful to that one. And just be always kind of having this ear turned towards heaven because on a daily basis, God might... Put it on your heart. Here's this person. I want you to just go tell them Jesus loves them. Here's this one person, your neighbor. They haven't even expressed their need, but I want you to go bake them a pie and put a card with it and go to your neighbor's house and tell them, you know what, I just want you to know that I love you and God loves you. Do whatever, but make sure that we're always sensitive. Jesus was always sensitive to the voice of the Father and the will of the Father, and he was always constantly just in that mode of, 
What's the Father want me to do right now? Who does the Father want me to touch and to heal and to teach? And what does He want me to say at this given moment? And all of us share that similarity in that regard. God wants us to be faithful, to be vessels that He would use. Don't put the whole burden of the world upon yourself. Even Jesus, as Messiah, dies on the cross for everybody, but in the course of His public ministry, didn't heal everybody, didn't raise everybody from the dead. He was faithful to do just as the Father told Him to do, and so should we. Always one ear to the Father, one eye on the rest of the world, being used by God as vessels of ministry. That's what Jesus is doing here. It's very challenging. He stepped over many people to go to the one to whom the Father directed him. Now, this guy's condition, we don't have the exact diagnosis for. It is possible that it is related to a sin issue. Let me make this statement clear. Is all physical disabilities or illnesses related to sin issues? No. Only in the sense that we live in a fallen world, and because we live in a fallen world, our bodies are subject to physical illnesses, okay? But don't make the association that because someone has this sickness, that must be sin in their life. In this guy's particular case, that may be so, because at the end of the healing, if you'll jump to verse 14, and we'll backtrack, but verse 14, it says, later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see you are well again, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. It is believed that this guy, some commentaries will say this, but we don't know for sure, this guy potentially had what is called tertiary or the third stage of syphilis, some kind of a sexually transmitted disease. If you do any kind of research on syphilis, it's a gruesome disease, but in its third stage, now we have antibiotics, uh, but um, in its third stage, it affected the central nervous system and it affected your brain. It is likely that this guy was paralyzed because there's a sin issue going on here. Perhaps the sin issue of being very promiscuous, had a venereal disease, and now as a result, he's paralyzed here because it's affected his brain and um, his neurological function. But Jesus says to him, okay, here's the one the Father directs Jesus to. Here's this one person here. Here's this paralytic. Here's this invalid. And Jesus says to him, pick up your mat and walk. He's got this bedding that he was lying on. Jesus says, roll it up. Pick it up and walk. And it says in verse 9, At once the man was cured, and he picked up his mat and walked. This is incredible. I mean, atrophy had to have set in after 38 years. But Jesus just, you know, with the spoken word here, every muscle, every nerve, everything in this man's body just, boom, 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 comes back to its normal function. This guy rolls up his little mat, starts walking home. But not everybody's happy about this. Why? Because it's a Sabbath. Oh, you vain. <laughs> Look here, the rest of verse 9. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Forget the fact that this guy has been a paralytic for 38 years. They don't even notice that the guy's up and walking. What they notice is, You're carrying your mat, aren't you? You're carrying your mat. You know you can't do that, right? This is a Sabbath. You can't be doing any work. You're doing some work. I mean, do they even know that this is the same guy who was lying on this mat? And he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So I'm just doing what the guy told me to do. He healed me. So they asked him, well, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple. Notice that. Why is he at the temple? Because this guy wants to give thanks to God for the miracle that he's experienced. He's got his priorities right. 
He knows that something happened to him miraculous and dramatic. He may not know that it was Jesus until this next encounter here, but he knows this much. This is from the hand of God. I'm going to go to the house of the Lord. I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to praise God. And Jesus later found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. The Gospel of John is an interesting take on the life of Jesus. He was absolutely a man who experienced things as a human. But he's also God. And so because of that, he's able to do things that are unthinkable to the average human. But it's clear to see through this book that Jesus is anything but average. He's the Son of God. Are you interested in knowing more about Jesus and what He's done for you? Perhaps you'd like some prayer support in what you're learning or growing in. If so, please email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? We'd like to invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. You can find out service times and other information when you visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary and even download our mobile app. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in and hearing some things from the book of John that may be life-altering for you. We look forward to you joining us again for our next edition here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know But still you know You're not